encourage you to take out your Bibles and follow along with me so that we can work toward having a united effort to finding nothing but the truth in the scriptures this morning. I want you to take a moment and imagine a scenario. You receive a package in the mail. You don't know where it's from. You don't know who it's from, who sent it to you, and you don't even know what it is. So you start opening it up and you realize, okay, this is something I have to assemble. I have to put it together. There's over a hundred parts though, of various shape and size. It comes with no tools, no instructions, and just a various bag of just miscellaneous hardware. And you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what I'm gonna do with this jumble of parts. You may end up in a situation like this guy. Now some of you in this scenario, this may sound like fun. I'm in the, the majority though that probably thinks that this sounds like a creative nightmare. And um, I imagine if we gave that same package to a hundred different people, we'd probably get a hundred different creations. Or probably more like it, we'd get 10 different creations and 90 piles of the same thing that way it started. And I would certainly be in the latter half of that, or the latter, the, the majority of that. But let me tell you a couple things. If the sender had an intention for what this was supposed to turn out like, they didn't do a very good job at explaining what it was going to be to the person that was supposed to assemble it. If they had an intention, they didn't do very good at revealing what that intention was. This is not the scenario that we have as Christians. When it comes to matters of our faith, we have been given the divine and verbally inspired word of God. I read a quote, without divine revelation, man would be left to wonder, guess, and speculate about God's will. But God hasn't left us in this situation of uncertainty and doubt. But rather, God has given us a standard. So this morning, we are going to look at how we can avoid the situation of that picture and how the religious world as a whole, if it looks to the standard, can avoid that situation. Because frankly, um, the religious world out there they are having a hundred different creations. They are having a hundred different patterns by which they are trying to model their faith and they're not looking to the standard which is the Word of God. That's the truth of the scenario that, that is all around us in the world is that we see that image you know, that we showed just a moment ago and that is the religious world around us is, is those that are trying to uh, proclaim to be Christians and are not choosing to look to the standard. They're not choosing to look to the Bible itself and letting the Bible serve as our standard. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. God tells us, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is the sender of the package in our illustration that we call life and how we should put our faith together and how we should look to the Word for the standard. And God desires that we find the truth and that we are saved and that we come to the knowledge of the truth rather than being forced to guess and speculate what God's will is for our lives. So that being said, we're going to look at a few different things that the Bible, how the Bible talks about itself and ways that the Bible serves as the standard so that we all can find the truth and that we all can serve God and ultimately be saved. So how does the Bible serve as our standard? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is how the Bible proclaims itself. We'll spend a good majority of our lesson actually in this very first point in that the Bible proclaims itself to be the standard. It's not making us guess and, and saying, well, is the Bible something that I can trust fully and, and absolute with, with absolute certainty of authority? Yes, it, it tells us that absolutely we can trust the Bible as it proclaims itself over and over and over again. The first way that the Bible proclaims itself is that it tells us that it is the Word of God revealed to man. Just like that package that was sent to us, there's no label, there's no company, there's no sender, there's no information, we don't know who it's from. That's not the Bible. The Bible tells us exactly where it came from, who it is from, and that it is the Word of God revealed to man. Well, first of all, I want to look through the, several of the Old Testament scriptures that, that make this claim that it is the Word of God. Several of the prophets, if not almost, I would say, venture to say, all of the prophets at some point or another make the claim that they are speaking as the Lord is moving them to speak. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Samuel is speaking that right there, that he is not the one speaking, but God's word, the Spirit of the Lord was speaking to him, and, and that was the word that he was proclaiming that was on his tongue. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jeremiah 10, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah starts out here saying, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. This isn't Jeremiah speaking, it's the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. Ezekiel 1, verse 3, The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. You see how it says that there? This is not Ezekiel's word, it is God's word speaking through Ezekiel. And then one more, Hosea chapter 1, and verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord that, <clears throat> that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Isaiah, and so on and so forth. But the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Hosea is not speaking his word, but rather he is claiming that he is speaking God's word. Well, similarly, the spirit of the Lord spoke by New Testament authors. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 37 where Paul says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of who? 
not the commandments of Paul, but he says the commandments of the Lord. Paul claims that he's not speaking on his own authority. He's speaking the commandments of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. Turn with me there, please. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. But there we see, once again, that claim. And this is just a few examples of countless, countless claims that the word of God, that the apostles and prophets and, and those that penned the very words of the scriptures, they were not the ones speaking. It was done through inspiration and that it was God's word. And then one more of those, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. It says that the Spirit expressly says. That is a, a good description of inspiration of the Bible right there. That it's not these men just writing down these words and, and saying, here's what we're calling the Word of God. It's, it's not their, their own thoughts, but rather the Bible itself is a verbally inspired message from God revealed to man. Turn with me. A, a, a great passage that illustrates this point is 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16. Many of us can probably quote this passage as it's well known and rightly so. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the part that I want to focus on. The rest of the verse is absolutely um, is showing us what, what the Word of God actually can result in in our lives, that it can equip us for good work. But right there at the very beginning, it doesn't say some scripture. It doesn't say a little bit of scripture or most scripture. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We can understand that the Word of God is revealed to us and it is done through inspiration and that it's not the messages of those that were the authors that penned the words of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 starting at verse 1. It says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Right there's a pretty good summary, I would say, of how the Bible came to be. That God at various times and in various ways, just like we had been talking about, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament authors, the apostles, they claimed that they were speaking the message of God. And then finally, in this point, the word of God is not from man. A couple more scriptures that will illustrate this point to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. We'll read verses 12 and 13. It says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. 
These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Once again, another claim that it's not man's wisdom, but it's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Where it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. You see, that's what we've been trying to say this whole time. Is that prophecy was not just simply what Moses wanted to write down. Or what, um, or what Samuel wanted to write down. Or what Isaiah or Jeremiah wanted to write down. Because prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It tells us what it is. The Bible proclaims this time and time and time again as it proclaims itself being the word of God. We know the source of where that package came from. We know where the word of God came from, and that's from God himself. As the Holy Spirit spoke and moved through those men, Another thing that the Bible proclaims about itself is that it is living and powerful. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is not just some book that has no life, that was just happenstance, that it just stuck around over the course of history. No, the Word of God is living, and it's powerful. And one other characteristic about it being living and powerful is that it is eternal. And that is, let's look at a few passages that support this point. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Where it says, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. Those are things that are not eternal. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. God's word lasts forever. Let's uh, turn over to Psalm chapter 19 and in verse 9. We'll spend a, a great deal of time in this passage here in a moment and diving a little bit deeper into it, but just picking out one point first from verse 9, where it says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You see, this is something that points out to us that the Word of God proclaims itself that it is living and powerful and eternal. There, there are multiple passages that talk about the eternal nature and the unchanging nature of both God and of Christ as well. For sake of time, we won't include those this morning, but, but we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And there's no shadow of change with our Lord. Another area where the Bible proclaims itself is that it is helpful or useful to live by. It's important for us to understand, if we have a package that we're trying to assemble, well, why? 
If we don't know what it is, we, we certainly are not going to find it useful or helpful to us. But once we have a purpose for an object, now it's useful and it's helpful to us. You see, if we're assembling a bookshelf and it's going to house our decorations or it's going to house our books or it's going to uh, liven the environment, we have a purpose now. We have a, a reason for its existence. The Bible proclaims that it has many, many reasons for existence. Let's look at a few of those. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Turn with me there. You see, the Bible is, is a book that is helpful to us, that can make our way prosperous. Let's look how. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's a progression. You see, if we meditate in God's word, as in we, studying God, we spend time studying and thinking on God's word, and then if we see that we observe to do all that is written in it, then, and only then, will we start to reap that benefit from God's word? And that is that it will make our way prosperous and we will find success. That's just one way that the Bible is helpful or useful for us to live by. Let's go back to that passage we were just talking at in Psalm chapter 19. Now there's several things that we can conclude from Psalm 19 about what the Bible does for us and how it is helpful and useful for us to live by. So let's spend that time reading 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There's the first one, that it converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It can make us wise. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It can make our hearts to rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we see many things there, that it converts our souls, it makes us wise, it can help our hearts to rejoice, and it enlightens us, and it can give us a great reward. What a wonderful passage we see in Psalm 19 of the glories that we can have by meditating in God's word. A couple other passages give us, uh, proclaim that the Bible will give us understanding and knowledge by which to live. Psalm 119. Turn with me to Psalm 119. And in verse 104 it says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. See, we get understanding through God's word. And then Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For those that are seeking to find the knowledge of God, they will find the knowledge of God.
because the Bible tells us that right here. If someone is looking to try and find understanding in the pages of the, of the Bible, it tells us right here that if we spend that time and apply ourselves and our hearts to understanding, we will understand. And so the Bible can give us understanding and knowledge. It's not a mystery to us. It does serve as that instruction book. And that's not to say that, um, that the Bible is limited to being just a book of instructions. I hope that illustration at the beginning doesn't necessarily lead to that conclusion because the Bible doesn't just serve as a list of instructions, but rather it is a living and powerful uh, book for us to live by. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. says, Then Jesus said to those who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If we follow and try to seek and understand the Bible, we will know the truth. And the Bible also in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that all things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us. And then one other thing that we see in Romans chapter 15 and in verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, talking about the Old Testament here, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So you see there's so many things that the Bible gives to us as its reader. And as one that meditates in it day and night and is careful to observe all that it has in there for us to do, it'll make our way prosperous. It'll give us great success. Our souls will be converted. It'll make us wise. Our hearts can rejoice. And on and on and on down the list, we can reap great benefits through the word of God. One other point of how the Bible proclaims itself. The Bible proclaims that it is perfect. There are many, many claims that the Bible is complete or perfect or whole or true. And this is just going to be a sampling of, of the many, many passages of the Bible making this claim. Once again, in that passage we were just spending time in, Psalm chapter 19, we already read that, that section there, um, but I want to look at, we, we focused on the latter half of each of those verses, now let's look at the former half of each of those verses. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true, and it is righteous altogether. What a powerful passage we see in Psalm 19. If you ever want to understand more and more about God's word and what it is, this is a perfect place to turn. The Bible also proclaims once again that it is true. Psalm chapter 119, turning back to that longest chapter in our Bible, Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word. Once again, it's not a part of God's word that is true. It's not the majority, but it is the entirety of God's word that is true. And then John chapter 17, verse 17 Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
God's word proclaims that it is truth. And then there's several other passages that are listed out here. And we'll turn to the Revelation one, if you will be turning your Bibles there. But just to point out a few details about these passages, there's countless passages that tell us, do not add to the Word of God, or do not take away from the Word of God. And simply by giving those instructions to the reader, it's clear that we can understand that the Bible is perfect. That is what is the necessary implication by saying, don't add or don't take away from God's Word. Thinking back toward that, uh, that package that we get in the mail, and we have no idea what to do, but let's say it's uh, actually a package that has been given to us with good instructions and with all the hardware, and we know what we're, we are to do. Let's say now we take out just a couple pieces of hardware. Anybody that's assembled any kind of bookshelf or anything like that and understands that if we don't have every piece, then it's not going to go well. We can understand that if we take away even just a portion from God's word, it's not going to go well. Or if we choose to just throw extra screws on, on that bookshelf or whatever that package was going to be, if we just throw extra parts at it without, you know, that, that's not going to go well either. It's going to not look as the intend, intention of the original maker or the designer. It's not going to be after that intention. Just like if we add to God's word, that's not God's intention. So we can imply by these passages, this list here, we are not to add or take away from God's word, but that God's word is the complete and perfect message from God. Revelation chapter 22 just to, to further illustrate this point. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You see, if we try to add to the word of God or take away from the word of God. God will add punishment to us and take away the blessings that come from the book of life. Well, similarly, just as we're not to add or take away from God's word, we're not to change it. We're not to influence our own minds by trying to change it and twist it to being what we want to say. That would be called a proclaiming another gospel. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8 gives us a warning of that very thing. But even if we, Paul talking here to the Galatian brethren, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You see, we're not to add or take away from God's word. We're not to change it either and proclaim another gospel. So we've seen all the different ways that the Bible, in fact, proclaims itself. Let's talk about another way that the Bible can serve as our standard. Because, see, the thing is, those in the world might listen and, and think, 
that's great that the Bible makes all these claims, but without proof, it, it's just words. It's just claims. And I will say that the Bible also proves itself to be accurate and to be true time and time again. How does it do this? Well, it does it through prophecy. So let's talk about prophecy and the nature of prophecy. <clears throat> prophecy is something that is foretold ahead of time and can give details that would not be expected and can time and time again prove itself to be true. How is it proven to be true? When that thing that is prophesied comes to pass. It is fulfilled when those details of the prophecies are fulfilled. So let's see the Bible actually talk about this very concept of prophecy. But first of all, what does prophecy, if it is fulfilled, what does it prove to us? What does it actually do for us? Well, Isaiah chapter 42, God himself speaks on this very point. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So let's look at verse 8 in light of verse 9. God says here, the former things that I've prophesied, they have come to pass. And now I'm proclaiming things for the future. New things I declare before they even occur, before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. That is why God can say, my glory I will not give to another. No other has that ability than God himself to make those claims and to ultimately see each and every detail without fail coming true, becoming fulfilled. And then also Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 8. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I love this passage because God points out once again, I am God and there is no other. There is no other who can do these things, who can declare the end from the beginning, who can proclaim ancient thing, or at ancient times that things that are not yet even done. And then verse 11 actually gives us clarity on how God is able to do that. And that he says, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. You see, God makes prophecies and then works to fulfill those prophecies. And each and every scrupulous detail will be followed. It will be fulfilled when it is a prophecy from God. Now, fulfilled prophecy would also prove the nature of who the Lord's spokespersons were. You see, because no other has that ability to prophesy and to have that come true in every finite detail. 
But if a messenger of God has proclaimed a prophecy, then that would prove that he is a messenger from God indeed. Deuteronomy chapter 18, turn with me there, please. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Then verse 22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So you see, if, if a prophet speaks something and then ultimately that prophecy is not fulfilled, that was not a prophecy from God. So we can assume or we can understand and imply that if a prophecy does become fulfilled, that it is a true prophecy from God. Jeremiah chapter 28 also speaks to this point. Jeremiah 28 and in verse 9 says, as for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord truly sends. Another thing that prophecy that is fulfilled would prove to us is that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is because Jesus both fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies, but Jesus himself also prophesied of things to come. For sake of time, we'll move through those and, and I'll have those passages up on the screen for any taking notes. But Jesus both served as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that spoke to his divine nature and that he was from God. But then also he prophesied of things to come, speaking to his divine nature. So in just a moment, I want to look at some examples that we see of fulfilled prophecies. Because all these claims are excellent about what fulfilled prophecy can actually prove to us. So I want to take just a moment and, and understand that once again, the Bible is chock full of countless prophecies that we see perfect fulfillment with each and every prophecy without fail. You see, when I want to take a moment aside though for, for a second and just to say there are those in the world that have proclaimed that proclaim themselves to be a prophet. Now those may be ultimately good at being intuitive and perhaps watching the news with future lines of thinking and, and predicting the expected outcome or predicting with vagueness of details. You see, those are not prophecies. Those are educated guesses. Just like there was one who prophesied that Russia would be the first one to land on the moon. They were ahead in the space race at the time, but ultimately they were not the first to land on the moon. You see, that was an educated guess. That's an example of how a prophet in the world, or countless times that prophets in the world have, have tried to predict what would be Jesus' final coming or his return to the world. And they've given specific dates on it. You see, either a prophet of the world will give no details and make educated guesses, or they will ultimately give details that will not come to pass. But let's look, in contrast to that, at examples of fulfilled prophecies from God's word. We'll just look at a few here, but 
A prophecy was made in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that Israel would be scattered among the nations, that Israel would be destroyed. And more details of prophecy were given to those when the northern kingdom of Israel was prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 14 that Israel was to be taken captive. And ultimately this was fulfilled once again in scrupulous detail. That it was to be Assyria, a nation by the river, that was to take the northern kingdom of Israel captive. This was ultimately fulfilled. And then Judah, also as the southern kingdom after this time, after the time of Israel being taken captive, northern, northern Israel, now Judah was also prophesied that it would, in fact, be taken over. Let's look to Isaiah chapter 39 here to look and see some of the details that are given of this prophecy. Isaiah 39, starting in verse 3 through verse 6. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And here we start to see some of those details. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now let's look to 2 Chronicles, where we see this ultimate fulfillment. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting at verse 11. We won't look through this whole passage here, but let's see. In verse 17, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that is, Babylon, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion. Then skipping ahead, we see in verse 18, And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. You see, not only was it accurate in the fact that it was to be Babylon who was to to carry away the southern kingdom of Judah, but also that every every item, every article, whether great or small, was all carried away. There was nothing remaining. And this was prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, many, many years before its ultimate fulfillment. Another one to look at would be Babylon. Babylon ultimately was also prophesied of its destruction. And it was given details that it would be prophesied, or it was prophesied that it would be the Medes. Uh, At the time, a group of, of people that was not a powerful nation, the Medes. And then ultimately, the Medes not a powerful nation at the time of this prophecy, would ultimately overthrow Babylon. And it was also prophesied that Babylon would never again be inhabited. Let's look to that passage in Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 13, starting at verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, that is, to be left desolate. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. So we see that is ultimately fulfilled in Daniel chapter 5. Many of us probably know the story of the hand and the writing on the wall and the interpretation of that writing on the wall was that the time of the end of the Chaldeans was there. And at the end of Daniel chapter 5, in verse 30, it says, That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So we see that ultimate fulfillment. But the other detail of that, that, <clears throat> that Babylon, that area, would never again be inhabited, we still look over to there that this day and see modern Iraq in ruins, the area of Babylon, and that prophecy still being fulfilled even to this very day. The Bible also proves itself through prophecy, and prophecy, the most important prophecies of the Messianic Savior coming to the world. And that is Jesus to be born of a virgin. These are details that any person without being divinely inspired, or any person without being divine themselves, would never say that one was to be born of a virgin. But yet, that was the prophecy being made in Isaiah 7 and 14, which ultimately is fulfilled, once again, in perfect detail, and that Jesus was born to Virgin Mary. Then also, that there was to be Zion's king, who would ride in on a donkey, was prophesied in Zechariah 9 verse 9, and ultimately fulfilled as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. A king would not normally have been prophesied to ride in on a donkey. They'd be prophesied to ride in on a horse if any person was to make an educated guess. And then also, once again, of Jesus, we see fine and descriptive details of how Jesus' crucifixion would have taken place. And we see that in Psalm 22. Turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, starting in verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. A lot of details given there. And then skipping forward in the Psalms. To Psalm 34, and in verse 20. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. So we see many, many details that they would pierce his hands and his side, and that his clothing would be divided and would be ultimately have lots cast for his clothing. 
finite details. We understand, especially when we see those fulfillments in finite detail once again, coming to pass just as they were said to come to pass, that the Bible proves itself. It doesn't just make claims of itself, as we looked at a moment ago. It doesn't just say that it is a helpful and useful book and that it's perfect. It doesn't say those things and make those claims and come out empty-handed. But time and time again, this is just a, a small sampling of prophecies we see fulfilled. But the Bible is powerful. It's living and powerful, and it is helpful, and it is useful, and it proves itself. So now, now that we've established what the Bible is, let's talk for a moment about what the actual instructions are for us. How it is that God has laid out in his own word for us to be saved. So let's look at the plan of salvation. And that is that the Bible presents a plan of salvation to us. So that we're not aimlessly trying to figure out or guess the intention of the sender of that, of that package. We're not guessing what each step is. But we know what each step is along the plan of salvation when it comes to our faith. And how we are to be saved. First of all, we must hear the message of God. Romans 10 and in verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Once we hear the message of God, we have to choose to believe in the message of God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those <clears throat> who diligently seek him. <clears throat> and then John chapter 3 and verse 16, that verse that we are also familiar with. <clears throat> John 3 and in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then continuing on as we look through our, our further steps of how to reach our end product here of becoming a Christian and being saved, is that we must repent of the sins. We've had a recent lesson on repentance and understand what the details of repentance are is that it is a turning from our old ways and choosing to walk in new ways and serving God. Acts chapter 17 and in verse 30 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Then following repentance, our next step towards salvation would be confessing our belief in the Father. Romans chapter 10 and in verse 9. Romans 10 and verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just as Peter made his great confession of his faith in the Lord in Matthew 16, we too are to make a confession of our belief in God and our belief in Jesus as his son as our Savior. Then Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, 
tells us the need to both repent and then ultimately be baptized. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, how we are to ultimately reach salvation and the instructions, the step-by-step plan that God has laid out for us. Now we've become a Christian, now we must remain faithful. You see, Romans chapter 6 and in verse 4 tells us, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we see that not only does the Bible proclaim itself, it ultimately proves that what it has claimed is true, and it does that through prophecy. Then the Bible presents itself to us as a plan of salvation that we are to follow if we are to reach that end product and and have a beautifully crafted cabinet or bookshelf as the maker intended for us to, using our illustration. But then one last thing that the Bible says about itself and how it serves as our standard is it warns us. And we'll look at just a few passages here and then the lesson will be yours. But the Bible warns us of ways that it will be perverted, of ways that those men that want to twist the scriptures or follow their own plan rather than following the plan of the maker will do. <clears throat> the first of those warnings is 2 John. We'll look at 2 John verses 9 through 11. Turn with me there to 2 John, starting in verse 9. It says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You see, the Bible here warns us that there will be those who try to bring another doctrine. There will be those that try to twist the scriptures and try to make it their own. Just as we've spoken earlier, no other gospel should be proclaimed or that person would be accursed. But it's warned to us here, it will happen. And that has happened. That has happened time and time and time again in the religious world for years and years and has been happening since the day that this was written It has always been happening, and it always will continue to happen, that there will be those that try to bring other doctrine. Those that bring us another set of instructions, or another instruction booklet, and say, this way is better, or I like my options better, I like my design better than the intention of God. But we are presented a solution in each of these verses that come, with, come to us with warnings. The solution here is don't even receive that person into your house or to greet them. Now that's not to say that we can't even say a hello to them, but that is to say that we are to not receive any portion of that doctrine or to not be welcoming to them or accepting to them of those doctrines that they choose to try to bring in to us that we're not even to receive those into our house, to not receive that doctrine or that, that belief into our house, to not even greet that person. Another one of these passages that predicts, uh, where the Bible is predicting its own perversion, is 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
This being a warning to young Timothy here, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. See, when a person has itching ears, they'll start looking around and trying to find a teacher that is teaching what they desire to hear. Because it's following after their own desires. It's following after trying to find something else that is not the standard, that is not the word of God. So we are warned that there will be those that will turn their ears away from the truth. The solution is presented here once again, and that is that we are to follow God's word and to not follow our own desires. We need to be careful that we don't look for teachers out there that will humor our itching ears and will allow our own desires to be after, to be the source, to be the the standard. When our own desires become the standard, we will not come out with a finished product that God desires for us to come out with. And then finally, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 3. 2 Timothy 3, sorry, in verse 13. <clears throat> but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there we have our warning, and let's continue reading on to see our solution presented to us. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then we see it wrap back around. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that passage right there sums up what we are to know about God's word and how it is to be the standard by which we live our lives. So what have we looked at this morning? We've been looking at how the Bible serves as our standard. The Bible proclaims itself. It proclaims that it is true, that it is perfect, that it is complete. And it proclaims that it is powerful and living and that it is eternal. And on and on it goes, it proclaims itself. But not only does it stop there, it proves itself through prophecy. And then it presents a plan of salvation whereby we are to be saved if we follow that plan of salvation and remain faithful to him. And then finally, it predicts its own perversion as it warns us of how that plan will not always be followed by those around us. And it warns us to not be one of those with itching ears, looking to follow our own standard rather than the standard of the word of God. I encourage you this morning if you've never become a Christian, if you've not put God on and put Christ on through baptism, if you haven't followed those steps to assemble your life in the pattern of how God would have you to do that, I encourage you this morning, please to do that, to make your life right with God, to follow those steps that lead us toward salvation. 
I encourage you and I plead with you. Or if you have done that and you've fallen away, if you have sin in a public manner, or if you would like prayers of the saints here for anything in your life, spiritually speaking, I would encourage you. If there's any matter that we can do for you spiritually this morning, I would encourage you to come to the front now as we stand and as we sing.